Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Tim Besley, uh, and I'm delighted to, inv to uh, invite you uh, to welcome you to this event, um, the uh, annual Economica Coast Lecture. Um, it's a particularly special year for us because this is the 100th anniversary of the journal. And uh, in this year, um, we thought it would be very nice to invite an alumnus back to come and talk to us. And uh, our choice very quickly was, was Thomas Piketty, who I'm sure needs very little introduction given uh, his, his uh, reputation. Um, Thomas is, of course, Professor of uh, Economics at the Paris School of Economics. And uh, among his many achievements are the Euro Janssen Award of the European Economic Association. And uh, he is famed for his book, Capital in the uh, 21st Century. Um, today, he's going to talk to us on the topic of a brief history of uh, equality. Um, so I don't want to waste uh, any more time, uh, given that we're here and keen to listen to him. Um, there'll be an opportunity for those who wish to, to post questions in, in the Q&A, and I'll do my best after Tom has spoken for a little while um, to, uh, um, uh, to uh, answer those questions. So over to you, Thomas. Thanks for uh, being here today, and we're very much looking forward to what you have to say. Thanks, Tim. Uh, thanks to all for being here. And, and uh, you know, I would love to be there in person, of course, but as we know, this is impossible. So let's do what we can. You know, it's always uh, great to be back uh, at, at LSE, uh, even though, uh, you know, we are all... Uh, uh, you know, looking at our computer right now, rather than at each other. So I think now you should see my slides. And so this this lecture uh, is going to uh, be about what you know. The title I propose is a brief history of equality: lessons from capital and ideology, and the world inequality uh, database. So let me say right away that, you know, in this talk, I'm going to present some of the findings uh, from my latest book, Capital and Ideology. I will also present some new findings uh, which we have put online in the World Inequality Database and which covers uh, data and maps about inequality which were not available uh, at the time of the writing of Capital and Ideology. Now, this book, Capital and Ideology, you know, it's again a book about the history of uh, inequality. So, you know, in a way, I'm always, uh, you know, exploring the same uh, subject. I think uh, I am making progress. You know, I think this is a better book than the previous one. Uh, it's still a very imperfect book. You know, I still need to learn a lot. And, you know, this kind of discussion that we're going to have today, uh, for me, is very useful to try to to make progress. I think this book is, is better than Capital in the 21st Century, uh, in particular for two reasons. First, it is less Western-centered. You know, it, I think it centers our view more on the colonial legacy in particular and the toll today. I will do that as well. Uh, you know, it's still too much Western-centered in many ways, just because of the limits of my knowledge, you know, my linguistic uh, competence. You know, you can hear the way I speak English and you can imagine about other language of the world. So, you know, it's, it's still, we are all very dependent on, on what kind of sources, primary sources we can use. And, you know, in spite of all my, uh, my best effort to try to cover as many part of the world as I can in this book, you know, I think this is still 
not as global as I would like it to be, but at least it, it is, it offers a more global perspective than capital in the 21st century. And the second, uh, the second big difference is that this new book focuses more on the role of politics and ideology and, and the general message is that the main determinants of the level and structure of uh, inequality uh, across societies and across countries is really uh, politics and ideology and political forces, ideological forces, more than purely uh, economic uh, factors or technological factors. And in that sense, you know, I should stress also that this is an optimistic book. Uh, I, I try to, to show in the in the book that there is a long run rise of equality. You know, in the long run, we are moving toward more equal societies. So now this is not a linear process. You know, this is true only if you take a very long run view. But I think, you know, there are optimistic lessons to be drawn from this history in order to keep moving in this direction. And, and this is very much uh, the spirit of, of my, of my work. If you want to have a better sense of the content of Capital and Ideology, which is a pretty long book, so you, you know, you don't have to read it all if you don't have time. But if you go to this website, uh, uh, pkt.psc.ens.fr slash ideology, you will have the full uh, set of uh, data series, tables and figures. So it's a book that's full of data. You have 169 uh, figures and tables and you will have them all online uh, and this will give you a good sense of you know the many topics that I'm not going to cover today in, in this talk and which you and which I cover in the book and if you go also to the uh, wid.world website the world inequality database website you will see updated uh, inequality data uh, some of which will be presented today so let me start this presentation so I'm going to try to make three uh, point, main point in this presentation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover these three topics. First, I will start with the colonial legacy and which I think is very important if we want to understand the structure of inequality in the world today, both within countries, you know, in, in, whether in the US, in Britain, in France, in Brazil, in South Africa, in India, you know, within many countries, you know, the colonial legacy has had a huge impact on, you know, until today on the structure of inequality. And also, of course, it's very important if we want to understand the structure of inequality between countries. Uh, the second part will be about this, this process of moving toward more equality that has happened uh, you know, in spite of all the, the difficulties uh, over the past centuries. And so I will talk about the learning of justice and which I will argue happened uh, through uh, revolts, revolution, social struggles, but also uh, uh, through the learning of uh, uh, better institutions in order to reduce inequality and at the same time move toward more economic prosperity. Uh, this includes the rise of uh, the social state, uh, more equal access to education and health, the rise of progressive taxation, the rise of more workers' rights and even co-management in companies in a number of countries. And, and that will be the second part. And then the third part will be about the next steps and the need to develop uh, uh, even more ambitious uh, institutions moving us in this direction. And this will include uh, notions of social federalism and participatory socialism, which I will talk about uh, in, the, in the last part of this presentation. So let me start with the first part about the, the colonial legacy. So 
starting with uh, with this is very important uh, you know to to understand you know the my you know the general uh, lessons about the the transformation of inequality regimes that i describe in my in my book uh, uh, for at least three reasons you know the first reason why the colonial legacy is so important is of course that slavery and colonialism played a central role in the rise of uh, western industrial uh, capitalism uh, the, the the second uh, important reason why it's so important to start from there is because the, the end of slavery and the end of colonialism also illustrates another uh, important uh, theme in my book, which is the central role of power, revolts, and revolution in the transformation of inequality regime. And finally, the third point which, which I, I want to stress is the issue of reparation for past prejudice and discrimination, which is, I think, a very important issue that has been neglected uh, for too long in many countries, you know, including in my own country in France and probably in Britain, in the US as well. Uh, and I think it's very important. It also illustrates, you know, the, the, the notion of ideological indeterminacy, which I try to stress in my work, which is that the, the, the learning of justice, the quest for justice is, 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 uh, is something, is a process that we need to take seriously. We need to take ideas and ideology seriously because individual uh, social interests or individual class position are not sufficient uh, to fully determine, uh, you know, the, you know, justice are so not uh, fully sufficient to determine one possible policy about reparation. You know, this requires a lot of collective uh, deliberation, a lot of collective thinking to build uh, uh, norms of justice that can be agreed upon, not by everybody, but at least by the largest possible um, um, uh, majority. So let me start with the first part, uh, you know, about the, 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 the historical importance of, uh, of the slavery and colonial uh, legacy. So on this uh, graph, you have a description of, uh, you know, the rise and fall of the Atlantic uh, slavery system uh, in terms of number of slaves in millions. So you can see you know, the, the peak of the system is around 1860 at the eve of the U.S. Civil War, where uh, uh, in, in the U.S. South, you have uh, uh, about 4 million slaves, which is uh, uh, four times more than around 1800. So between 1800 and 1860, the number of slaves in the U.S. South is multiplied by four. The production of cotton in the plantation economy is multiplied by 10. And at the eve of the U.S. Civil War, this production of cotton is feeding, you know, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the total uh, flow of cotton that's being used by the textile uh, manufacturing system, not only in northern United States, but also in Britain, in Europe, and in Western textile manufacturing at large. So in, in that obvious sense, you know, this, the slavery and plantation system, uh, in particular the, the one based in, in the south of the US, played uh, an absolutely uh, central role in the rise of Western industrial capitalism, you know, which doesn't mean that uh, the industrial revolution could not have happened in a different system, you know, with different labor relations, different balance of power, but, you know, this would have required a very different uh, balance of power between between different states, different social groups. In any case, this is uh, you know the history that has you know made uh, you know the entire world where where it is 
today, and, and this slavery system played an absolutely central role. Now, it's important when we say that to realize that, uh, you know, of course, the U.S. Uh, slavery system was very important, but, you know, you can see on this graph, you know, that the, the slavery system in Brazil and to a lesser extent in Cuba was also very important. It was also the last one to disappear, uh, you know, in uh, around 1890, uh, officially. Uh, uh, now, I want to stress also the French and British slavery system, which disappeared earlier. Uh, uh, so the abolition of slavery in Britain was adopted in 1833, uh, in France, uh, in the French slave islands in 1848. And in the French case, there was a first abolition during the French Revolution, uh, which happened uh, uh, after the revolt, the su first successful slave revolt uh, in uh, Saint-Domingue, which later became uh, Haiti. And that's, that's interesting. What's important to have in mind, and, and this is what you see on this second uh, graph, is that British and French slave islands were really the example in history where you have the largest concentration of slaves as a proportion of the population uh, in a given territory. So, you know, these are territories where you have 80 to 90 percent of slaves, uh, in, in particular in, in Saint-Domingue in, in 1790. So this is quite a lot more than in the south of the U.S. or in, or in Brazil. Uh, and uh, Saint-Domingue, in particular, uh, uh, at the eve of the French Revolution, was the largest concentration of slaves in absolute number for the entire uh, Atlantic uh, slavery system. And you can see on, on this uh, graph, you know, the huge expansion of the slavery system uh, uh, along the, you know, across the uh, 19th, uh, the 18th century. And in 1790, you know, when the French Revolution started, you had uh, 500,000 slaves uh, in Saint-Domingue, and this was by far the largest concentration of slaves in the Atlantic area. Now, why is it an interesting example? Well, because first it illustrates uh, uh, that, you know, the beginning of the end of this system was due first to a slave revolt, so what happened is that in 1791, a slave revolt started in Saint-Domingue and, and, and slaves basically pushed uh, slave owners away. Uh, and then in 1794, the French National Assembly adopted the abolition of slavery and then slavery was reintroduced in 1802 and until 1848 in the other slave islands, uh, Martinique, Guadeloupe, etc. Uh, uh, but uh, in fact, this decision of the French National Assembly in, in 1794 was not really a choice. It's just that the slave revolt had been successful and pushed the, the slave owners uh, out. And this is an interesting lesson which we have also throughout the history of inequality is that the, the first engine of change, you know, is the, the revolt, the revolution of, of groups that are being exploited, that are being dominated and which in the end contribute to, 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 uh, to, to change the, uh, you know, the, the balance of power and to change the structure of inequality. What's also interesting with the case of IT is that this is a case, as some of you uh, may already know, where uh, uh, what happened in the end is that the French state, uh, the French monarchy, which, which returned to power in France in 1815, in 1825, uh, in order to recognize the independence of Saint-Domingue, so Saint-Domingue declared its independence under the name of Haiti uh, in 1804. And in 1825, when finally the French monarchy uh, recognized the independence of Haiti, it was under the condition that Haiti will repay 
to France an enormous public debt, uh, which was set to about three years of output of IT of the time, so about 300% of GDP, we will say today, in order to reimburse uh, the French slave owners for uh, their loss uh, in property. Now, the same happened with the British abolition of 1833, where there was also full compensation to British slave owners, and there's been a lot of work by uh, uh, University College London uh, historians to publish uh, the corresponding data a couple of years ago. But in the case of IT, this is the state of IT which had to reimburse this 300% of GDP uh, public debt, which, of course, it was impossible to reimburse uh, this in one year by definition. So what happened is that a consortium of French bankers uh, uh, came to IT, proposed to refinance the debt with a very high interest rate. And in the end, IT had to repay this debt to France from 1825 until the 1950s. So for you know more than a century, so that's a complicated story. In the 1920s, the, the, this, this debt was uh, was resold to a consortium of U.S. bankers because at the time uh, there was a U.S. invasion of Haiti because there were other U.S. assets that the U.S. wanted to recover in Haiti. But the bottom line is this debt was repaid with interest, you know, between 1825 and 1950, and uh, you know this clearly. Uh, is an example which raises the issue of reparation, you know, because when well, so when you ask this to French uh, politicians today, you know, they would say, uh, okay, it's very bad that we made Haiti uh, pay this debt to compensate uh, French slave owners for their loss of property. But at the same time, this is such a long time ago. How can we change this? You know, what could we do? This is very long time ago. Now, the problem with this kind of reaction is that, as we all know, you know, there are expropriation which took place during World War II or even during World War One, which we actually compensate today. So like in France, you know, there was a, a, a commission that was set up in 1999 in order to recover, you know, some of the expropriation of Jewish property during World War II, which was not properly uh, compensated after World War II, and and you know it's very good that this is being done today. But then you know when you when you tell uh, people in the case of IT, well for you this is too late. Uh, you know of course this is very very difficult. And you know there is the same issue with reparation uh, in other contexts. Uh, uh, you know if you think in the United States uh, there was uh, never any uh, reparation for the. the the slaves we, we work for centuries without receiving any payment or for uh, the African-American population which suffered from racial discrimination until the 1960s in spite of the fact, for instance, that uh, uh, the U.S. Congress adopted in 1988 a law uh, uh, with a compensation for the Japanese-American uh, that was in turn uh, during uh, World War II, and each of them received $40,000, you know, each of the surviving uh, Japanese-American as of 1988. In some other case for expropriation, which took place during World War II, we compensate not only the living, the people who are still living today, but even their descendants. Why should we do it in one case and not in another case? You know, I think, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that there's a simple mathematical formula to solve all of this problem. You know, in the case of Haiti, I am proposing that France today should repay to Haiti 
the equivalent today of 300% of GDP, which will make about 30 billion dollars, which will be, you know, uh, around 1% of the total public debt of France today. So, you know, that's perfectly doable. And for the case, for IT, it will make a huge difference. But, you know, in other contexts, you know, we have to, we have to think about this. The bottom line is that I think it's very difficult to ignore, you know, more generally issues of uh, reparation for, for past discrimination and, and that these questions need to, need to be taken uh, uh, seriously. If we put the case of slave uh, societies into a broader perspective, you know, in this graph, you know, I show uh, you different level of income inequality uh, in historical perspective. So the simple indicator that I show you here is the share of total income going to the top 10%. So by definition, you know, if you had complete equality, it should be 10%. And if you had complete inequality, it should be 100%. So in practice, you see that it goes from, say, 20% to uh, 80% if you take the, 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 the most extreme uh, uh, societies, which are typically slave societies with 90% of, of slaves. If we look, uh, so these are historical examples, you know, ranging from Sweden in 1980, which would be the most equal society in our database, to uh, Saint-Domingue in 1790, which would be the most unequal. If, if you look at the world map today, so this is a map coming from the World Inequality Database, it is quite striking to see that the, the top 10% uh, income share, you know, goes from about 20, 25% uh, 25% in, in countries like Sweden or Norway to, you know, almost 70%, 65-70% in South Africa. Uh, in, in Brazil, uh, Mexico, Chile, it will be around 60%. So it, it varies quite a lot. Uh, and it's even more striking if you look on the next slide at the share going to the bottom 50%. So again, think in terms of orders of magnitude, if we had complete equality, the share going to the bottom 50% should be 50%. Now, in practice, it's, of course, it's always below 50% because these are the bottom 50%. The thing is that it goes from uh, about 5 to 6% in South Africa to 20, 25% in uh, Sweden or Norway. So it varies from a, a factor of 1 to 5 which is quite striking because it means that for a same uh, average income, you know, for a same, for the, for a given level of aggregate GDP per capita, in fact, the average income of the bottom 50% can vary uh, with a factor from one to five. So, you know, this shows very clearly, I think that, you know, how much distribution matters. So if we only look at aggregate GDP, we are going to miss a lot because we are going to miss the fact that, you know, the actual level of poverty and the actual living conditions of the bottom 50%, it can be widely different if you only look at GDP. So this is why, you know, in the World Inequality Database, we try to produce distributional national accounts where we distribute the, 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 the macroeconomic uh, uh, GDP and national income by, by, um, by, by percentile of the distribution by combining all data sources, including household survey, fiscal data, national accounts, and, and so you will find a lot more information if you go to wid.world uh, online. Now, returning to, to the historical uh, narrative, 
here on this slide, I, you know, I show you how a colonial society like Algeria in, in 1930, you know, would be intermediate between, you know, the slave society of Haiti, which would be the, the most extreme example in terms of inequality. And I, I put France in 1910, which is a pretty unequal society, you know, by, as compared to today. But still, you can see, you know, the graduation between Uh, the, the, you know, metropolitan France uh, at the time of the colonial empire, a colonial society like Algeria and, uh, and a slave society, which sort of illustrates the, the different level of inequality. Now, in terms of economic mechanism, uh, uh, you know, in the case of colonial societies, so you don't have slavery, you don't have forced labor, although sometimes you have some quasi-forced labor um, uh, uh, regime that is going on, but you have, in any case, you have a lot of legal discrimination, so typically in Algeria, in French Algeria in 1930 or in 1950, you would, uh, you know, the, the, the children would not go to the same school. Uh, I mean, it's a, lit a little bit like US South until the 1960s, uh, you would have extreme legal segregation between the, the Algerian Muslim population and the, the, the white settlers. So this is particularly visible if you look at the uh, inequality of educational investment. So here this is, uh, you know, on this slide, you know, I have looked at how the distribution of total educational investment looks like in a colonial society like Algeria. So basically what you see on this graph is that the top 10% of the children who receive the biggest educational investment receive uh, more than 80% of total educational investment. And basically these are the children of the, of the, of the colonizer. So we have the budget, you know, in the archives of uh, colonial Algeria. We know how much was spent Uh, uh, on the different school system. Basically, there was a different school system for the uh, settlers uh, and, and uh, well, the children of the European population, mostly French population, and the, the Algerian children. And, and this is what we get. And you can see the difference with what's, uh, what you have in metropolitan France, which is also very unequal. You know, in France in 1910, like Britain in 1910, you know, it's a place where only a small elite will go to high school and to university and most people will just have primary school education. But still, you know, even though it was very unequal, uh, this, this has nothing to do with colonial society. So I think this gives you a sort of concrete sense of what it means to be, you know, even more, you know, inegalitarian and, and that, you know, education is, of course, one of the key mechanisms through which you can transmit Uh, inequality and make it persist. Uh, if you look at France today, uh, you know, it looks a lot more equal. Uh, so, of course, it is a lot more equal as compared to France a century ago, and this has to do with the, the, the rise of equality, which I was talking about at the beginning, but it is still very unequal, as we will see later, you know, because on this graph, you know, you see that the top 10% share Uh, you know, seems to be smaller than the bottom 50% share, but of course the, the number of children in the top 10% is five times smaller than the number of children in the bottom 50%. So in fact, this still means that there's a lot of inequality in the sense that the children with the highest level of investment going to the most elitist schools in, in today's France uh, receive a lot more resources than the, the bottom. So it's just, you know, it's, we still have a very unequal system. It's just that it's, it's less unequal than what it, what it used to. I'm going to stop there with the colonial perspective. I just want to 
to to stress that you know of course where does colonialism come from well one of the key factors was the building up of a fiscal capacity and military capacity in european uh, states you know between uh, 1600 and especially 1700 and, and 1800 uh, largely due to uh, interstate competition in europe which in the end made possible for you know european uh, state powers to basically conquer the rest of the world and and organize uh, 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 you know the, the, the rise of, uh, of of the of the west now this same the reason i'm showing this to you is that this same uh, state capacity and fiscal capacity is going to be used in the in uh, you know in the 19th century and especially in the 20th century in order to reduce inequality and to and to pay for uh, social spending and 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 uh, and you know very progressive social policies so this is you know the, the ambivalence of state building that it can comes with extreme inequality and extreme oppression it can also be used for different political projects and one case uh, which i stress in the book which is particularly striking is the case of sweden which you know we look today at Sweden as a very equal country, you know, social democratic Sweden. But in fact, until 1910, uh, you you had already a pretty uh, developed state capacity in Sweden as compared to other European countries. But it was used to maintain a very unequal uh, proprietarian society, ownership societies, where the, the number of voting rights would increase with your size of your property you would have up to 100 votes for people who were very uh, wealthy in Sweden until 1910 and and then it was only through a very big uh, social mobilization political mobilization with the rise of the social democratic party in Sweden uh, taking power in 1932 and keeping power for a couple of decades that the same state capacity was put to the service of a completely different uh, political project. And so that's part of, of, you know, what I'm going to talk about now, which is this learning of justice, which is that, you know, in the long run, if we have a, a rise of equality, it's because, you know, gradually through social struggles, but also through social uh, learning, you know, we have developed institutions, uh, including, you know, the rise of the social and fiscal state, co-management, workers' rights, more equal education, progressive taxation, which has made it possible to reduce uh, uh, inequality. Uh, and, and, you know, I would really argue that uh, together with workers' rights, free education, free health, progressive taxation of income and wealth played a central role in the reduction of inequality during the 20th century. Unfortunately, is now and has been under threat for, 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 a, for a number of decades and need to be, in my view, resought and extended in the century to come. First thing, let, let me stress that, you know, we have a, a, a reduction of inequality uh, so, for instance, in France in the in the 20th century, but first you really need to wait for World War One, World War Two to see the beginning of a reduction of inequality. And also, what you should remember is that although the the share of total wealth uh, owned by the top one percent today in France or Britain, it will be similar in Britain, uh, is much less than what it was one century ago. The share going to the bottom 50% is still extremely small. So, you know, in a country like France today, it will be uh, uh, 6% of total wealth that is owned by the bottom 50%. 
in the 19th century, it was 2%. So, you know, this is an improvement, but, you know, this is still very small for the bottom 50%. This is something that you find not only in France, but uh, in pretty much every European society. So here you see France, Britain, Sweden at the eve of World War One, where basically, well, there's even a bit more inequality in Britain than in France. And, and, you know, this was sometimes used as an argument in France, you know, not to create an income tax until the summer of 1914 and the financing of the war with Germany made it necessary. Uh, but in fact, the truth is that all these societies, you know, were very, very unequal, you know, with 80 to 90% of total wealth. So here I'm looking at wealth inequality, which is always more concentrated than income inequality, which I have shown you before. And you can see that, the, you know, the bottom 50% in, in, this, in these three countries own almost nothing at the beginning of the century. Now, if you compare with the situation today, so here I have compared, I compare Europe in 1913. Uh, 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 so this is basically the average of Britain, France, Sweden, and we've seen that it was relatively close with Europe today and US today. So you can see the big difference is that today the middle 40% uh, owns, you know, a substantial fraction of the wealth, you know, as compared to, to, uh, to a century ago. So this is a, a big change, you know, major rise of equality in a, in a sense. Uh, but it's still limited in the sense that the bottom 50% did not really benefit much from this extension and this, uh, this diffusion of property. And, you know, this is why, you know, in, in, you know, in my, at the end of my book, I make proposal about a more ambitious redistribution of property, in particular redistribution of inheritance, which in, in my view, there should be a minimum inheritance for all, including for the bottom 50% children. If we want to move closer to equality of opportunity, we will still be very far from that because that will require equal inheritance for all, but at least moving a little bit in this direction, I think uh, will be uh, very beneficial for, for society as a whole and will allow uh, to have a, a stronger diffusion of wealth than what we have. You can see the US today, it's really moving in the direction of Europe a century ago. Uh, the share going to the middle 40% has declined significantly in, in recent uh, decades. Uh, so what, what, what made redistribution possible during the 20th century? Well, progressive taxation was one of the tools. So there were proposals to introduce pro very progressive taxation of income and inherited wealth already at the time of the French Revolution, as you can see in these examples, but they were not adopted. Somehow the balance of power did, at the time did not allow for the adoption of such proposal. Now, what's interesting is that this proposal uh, with tax rate going to, you know, from less than 5% to income and wealth below average, to 70, 80% uh, for income and wealth, 1,000 times, uh, times average, are actually very close to the kind of uh, 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 progressive taxation systems that were actually adopted uh, in, the, in the 20th century in many uh, developed countries, including uh, in the US. So you can see on this graph that the US really, to a large extent, led the movement toward very progressive taxation already in the 1920s. And between 1930 and 1980, uh, the top income tax rate uh, in the US on average was uh, 80 
percent. And uh, you know, I think if we if we look if we look at the historical data that we have today, you know, what I will argue and what I argue in my work is that in the end this worked pretty well in the sense that this reduced very strongly um, uh, inequality at no cost in terms of innovation and growth. You know, if anything, productivity growth rates were uh, twice as large in the US between 1950 and 1980 than what they have been since the 1980s. Uh, I think the true source of economic prosperity in the long run is much more education and relatively equal education. And the US as a country had a huge educational advance over Europe uh, uh, in the middle of the 20th century, and that was much more important than, than, uh, than progressive taxation. What progressive taxation made possible is first to reduce inequality, uh, which was very large at the beginning of the 20th century, and also built some social uh, consensus about the rise of uh, uh, fiscal consent and tax capacity in order to pay for social spending, uh, Else, uh, public infrastructure, education, because at least in the middle of the 20th century, uh, people knew that, uh, you know, okay, everybody has to pay tax, but at least, you know, the people at the top are paying more than the middle class and, 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 you know, so it's more acceptable. And I think it's one of the problems today that we have, which is that the middle class often feels that they are paying, that, you know, some people at the top are paying less than what they do, and which unfortunately is, is sometimes uh, the case. So this is, for the invention of progressive income taxation, you have the same evolution for inheritance taxation, where you can see again that US, Britain, Japan led the way, more than Germany and France, where wealth redistribution was done through destruction, inflation, more than in uh, uh, than through uh, progressive uh, uh, taxation. Now, the rise of social spending that was made possible by the overall rise of taxation, not only taxation at the top, but also increased uh, acceptance of, of taxation by the uh, entire society, made possible a huge increase uh, in educational investment, health investment. So before World War I, uh, taxation was, you know, tax revenue was less than 10% of national income. Uh, so this is the average of Germany, uh, France, Britain, Sweden. You know, you have small variation between countries, but it's relatively close. Uh, so before World War One, it was total tax revenue were less than 10% of national income, and most of it will go to uh, fund the army, the police, uh, uh, to pay for the, 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 the you know military and colonial expansion, and total social spending were you know, less than 2% of national income, including less than 0.5% of national income for education. It was particularly low in Britain. Uh, in, in the US, it was up about 1% of national income in, in, in 1910. So it was more than twice as much as in Europe, but it was still, you know, limited. And then there was a big rise uh, across the 20th century, which, which uh, you know, is a, is a very important part, both in the reduction of inequality and in the rise of economic uh, prosperity. Now, today, the problem today, and, you know, I'm going to come to my uh, conclusion, is that we have a very unequal education system when it comes to access to higher education. So, you know, there's been a big 
rise of primary and secondary education with, uh, you know, 90%, 95% of a generation uh, going to primary school and then to secondary school. But when it comes to higher education, which you know, has become the main challenge in recent decades in rich countries, you can see on this graph, which comes from research by my friends, uh, Emmanuel Saez and Raj Shetty, that, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, if you compare, you know, percentile of parental income with rate of access to higher education in the United States, you know, it's almost the first diagonal. You, you go almost from 0% to 100%, uh, you know, not quite, but it's almost there. And if you were to take into account the fact that people with rich parents uh, go to much better funded universities than people with poor parents, you know, it would be even more spectacular. And I should say, you know, it's a problem. It's not only in a, in a, in a system like the US where you have a lot of high private tuition fees and private universities. It will also be the case. So here it's a different kind of graph where I look for France at, you know, the total level of educational investment um, of, uh, you know, if you, you I rank uh, children from the same generation by percentile of total educational investment received. And you can see that, you know, people at the top of the distribution will receive 250, 300,000 euros of, uh, so this is public educational investment. So at the top, this will be the people going to very elitist school, uh, elitist grand école in the French context. Uh, 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 people in the middle will be people going to the basic university uh, system, which is much less well-funded than the elite schools in the French system. And people at the bottom will be people uh, leaving school uh, at the age of 18. So you can see how public investment in effect exacerbate uh, uh, inequality. And, and, you know, we are very far from any notion of uh, educational uh, justice. So now if we look at the next steps, well, more educational justice is certainly a very important issue, but more generally, you know, I, I, I argue in my books that you know, we need to move toward uh, uh, what I call social federalism, which is a different organization of globalization uh, based in particular on global tax justice uh, and participatory socialism, which in, 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 in my view is a system that will go even f further in the direction of more workers' rights, more co-management, like what was done in Sweden and Germany, but, but even, even more in this direction, uh, and more uh, redistribution of income and wealth, which will include, in particular, uh, inheritance for all. I, I also argue that you know, one of the big limitations of social democracy uh, during 1950-1980 period, in spite of all its achievements, is that it was too centered on, on, on the nation states and in particular the rich nation states of Europe, and and you know it contributed in the end somehow to the rise of a very unequal uh, world uh, system, uh, including forms of, of neo-colonialism since the 1980s. Uh, now. The transformation that I am calling for, you know, is, is, is very uh, uh, important as compared to today's economic system. But at the same time, what I really want to stress is that we've already seen a huge transformation of our economic institution over the past century. So, you know, the transition from the colonial capitalist system of 1910 and the kind of welfare state capitalist system or social democratic system 
that we have today, uh, you know, it's already an enormous transformation. And the transformation between today's system and the kind of social federalist and participatory socialism systems that I am describing, I think is not, is, is very much in the, goes in the same direction. You know, it's not a bigger transformation. It goes, it's a, a transformation of a similar magnitude going in the same direction. So, I, you know, I'm not talking about what's going to happen uh, next week or next year. You know, I'm trying to think about possible long-run evolution when I look at the long-run evolution of economic and social and political systems. And I think from this long-run perspective, you know, it, it makes sense to, to, to think about these ambitious goals. You know, we can, we cannot just be thinking about, uh, you know, next election or next, next year. You know, I think it's, it's important to take this broad view from time to time. Now, how will it happen politically? You know, it will not happen just like this. You know, it will happen uh, through, uh, you know, enormous uh, uh, political social crises. Many people argue that the, you know, the coming environmental crisis uh, will be one of the forces which will trigger such a transition. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I think other factors, you know, social factors, financial crisis can also be very play a big role. You know, the pandemic uh, crisis like what we have today can also contribute. Although, I, you know, I personally think that it will take much more than this. But you know, in any case, you know, I think it's important to have this long-run perspective. Uh, you know, I, I, I could say more about social federalism and participatory socialism in particular about the fact that the recent period, you know, has seen a, a reduction of inequality between emerging countries and, and middle income, but a very big rise of inequality between the middle and the top. And, and, you know, that's one of the big limitation of the way uh, globalization has been, has been regulated so far. So this is why we need social federalism and more global tax justice in order to, to, uh, to have a much faster reduction of, of global Poverty, uh, uh, the rise of tax havens has been very damaging, in particular for Africa, Latin America. Bene very beneficial for oligarchs in Russia and the Gulf countries. You know, some of them uh, putting their money in London or Paris, uh, uh, but you know, very damaging for countries in the South in terms of state building and building an acceptable uh, tax system for for uh, for their uh, for their country. Uh, uh, you know, there's been a I think too fast trade liberalization also, which contributed to a very fast decline of international uh, trade uh, tax revenue uh, in poor countries without taking the time to build an income tax system, a property tax system that will replace this tax revenue. And I think this was imposed to a large extent by rich countries. And, and that's part also of the sort of neo-colonial legacies that we have to deal with today. Uh, we have uh, uh, outgoing outflow of profits coming from the South or actually coming from Eastern Europe, uh, which are very often bigger than the official, uh, 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 you know, international aid or European Union flow into these countries. And, and, you know, I think it's very important to look both at the public and the private flow, because, you know, if you have public flow of international 
head of our regional funds in the in, in the EU, which are smaller than the you know the outflow of private profits, then 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 you should not be surprised if people uh, are not so happy uh, you know with the very low wage and and big outflow of profits that they that they are getting on the on the other side of the of the wall. Uh, so th these are issues to you know have in mind to understand you know the, the proposals that I make about a different organization of globalization. Basically, the idea of social federalism is that you cannot have free trade and free capital flows if you don't have some kind of global uh, tax justice, which may require in some cases some transnational assembly to adopt some climate objective, some, some uh, tax justice objective. Uh, and, you know, I, I think to some extent we are moving in this direction of understanding that free trade, free capital flows without common taxation and common, uh, 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 you know, environmental and social justice is not sustainable in the long run. And the system of redistribution of income and properties that I'm proposing, you know, relies on Again, the lessons about very progressive taxation that we have uh, that we have seen in the history of the 20th century. Let me stop with this final slide on global carbon emission, which, as I said before, you know, could be one of the factors that will drive political change in the future. Maybe not the only one, but you know, I want to remind you that you know there's huge inequality in carbon emission across the world. You know, if you only look at aggregate carbon emission, you, you, you have the impression that North America, Europe, and China are sort of comparable. But if you look at the top 1% uh, global carbon emitters, uh, you know, it's uh, almost 60% of them are in North America, mostly the United States. So is it possible to continue to have a free trade uh, between regions that are imposing uh, completely different uh, carbon emissions with huge, potentially huge negative externality on the rest of the world. And, you know, what will be the long run consequences on the way we organize uh, international integration? You know, I think that's clearly one of the factors that can induce uh, a major transformation in the dominant uh, ideology about how to organize the economy. Let me stop there. Sorry, team, and sorry all for being uh, probably a bit too long, and, and I'm very glad to answer question now. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Thomas. Um, so as you can imagine, we've had lots of uh, questions coming in. I'm going to, I've been trying to monitor them as best I can to sort of group them a little bit. So let me kick off with the following one that, that I've seen a few people asking in different ways, and that's around um, reparations for past injustice. I guess you talked about colonialism. Um, what, in, what, in your view, is the right way to think about that? Um, those reparations were they? In, you talked at the end about your your kind of model of what you called um, uh, social federal. I can't remember the exact term. Uh, social federalism. Yes. Yeah, social federal. Does that encompass some notion of reparation, um, or, 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 or is there a specific mechanism that you kind of would advocate for for dealing with that? In my view, you know, social federalism should include, uh, indeed, uh, some mechanism to share uh, tax resources at the global level, at least for the most powerful uh, economic actors. So if you think of the taxation of multinational uh, profits, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk uh, in at the OECD on, 
you know, what should be the formula, you know, assuming we agree that, you know, multinationals, we are going to have one declaration of profits for multinationals at the world level. Now, how do you uh, distribute the, the taxing rights across countries? Is it based on uh, employment? Is it based on sales? And, you know, people have tried different formula, but if you only use employment or sales or uh, uh, other indicators like this, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, you're going to leave out the South. So what's going to happen is that, you know, you're going to take back some of the tax base that is now in tax haven and you're going to put it into the, the tax coffers of uh, France, uh, Germany, Britain, US, you know, which is good. I mean, that's better than tax havens, but that's going to leave the South pretty much out of the picture. And I think one of the structural forms that, you know, some kind of reparation could take is to say, well, look, at least for this transnational economic actors, multinational uh, uh, companies. And I think this could also apply to the uh, world billionaire. You know, their prosperity historically has been based on a world economic system, has been based, you know, on the uh, world division of labor, world exploitation of natural resources, labor in some cases. And, you know, now, you know, we should use part of this tax base to finance, you know, a sort of universal uh, taxing right in order to pay for basic access, you know, to health, education, and, you know, of course, paying for a vaccine like what we have to do today for the pandemic is a typical example where, you know, we can see the need to have a sort of basic per capita right to some basic uh, public good. But I think more generally, uh, you know, this will entail a transformation like this. Now, this will be a sort of universal, more structural approach. Uh, now, there are some other specific reparation. You know, I mentioned the case of Haiti. Uh, uh, you know, I mentioned, uh, you know, in, in uh, if you go to the former slave islands like uh, Martinique or Guadeloupe, you know, you will see the descendants of slave owners who benefited from compensation to slave owners at the time of abolition to reinvest their assets into land, property, other forms of property. You know, could you have some kind of land reform so that landless peasants in these very unequal settings, you know, can access land? You know, there were proposals that were made, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And, you know, I think at, at some point we should, we should get also to this kind of more specific uh, reparation, uh, reparation schemes. Okay. And, and they are, you sounded dismissive, but a number of people have asked about whether COVID is is going to play a, a role in, in in the long run, maybe generating some change uh, towards equality. Obviously, many of the short-term implications have been the opposite. So where, where do, you, do you have a kind of take on how the pandemic is likely to play into this, or do you think it's just a small blip in a much bigger historical picture? Well, you know, I, I could say that it's too early to tell, but, you know, my best guess is that it will it will not, it will not be sufficient. You know, it will, it will, you know, of course, COVID will contribute to rehabilitate the idea of, uh, uh, you know, health as a public good and, you know, more investment in health and, and public hospital. Uh, uh, you know, it's the case of Europe, you know, we've seen uh, in the Euro European Union, we, you know, we've seen a move toward a common public debt, which is something that nobody wanted to hear about uh, one year ago. So, you know, this, this is, these are, uh, these, these are, these are big, big changes. But, 
in you know in the end I, you know i think you know it will require you know much bigger uh, uh, you know ideological transformation and, and political uh, mobilization to to get us uh, uh, moving in this direction and as you said you know one of the key shock front effect has been to enrich uh, you know the richest group and in particular uh, you know if you look at the top billionaire of the world who have benefited a lot and when i see the discussion today about uh, wealth taxation you know, okay, this is moving a little bit, but, you know, we're still, uh, this is very slow. You know, when I think of what was done after World War II in terms of exceptional wealth tax, you know, like in, including in Germany or in Japan, you know, uh, up to more than 50% of, of tax rate on the top uh, wealth holders in Germany in 1952, uh, you know, at a time where it was very complicated to organize this system, but, you know, there was a political commitment to do it. You know, I think today we, st we are still living in a period where we have very conservative, uh, in my view, uh, uh, economic thinking about this. And this is changing. Look, the proposals that were made by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in the U.S. campaign, you know, with a tax rate of up to 8% per year on U.S. billionaires, so someone with 100 billion would have paid 8 billion in tax per year, uh, you know, 80 billion in 10 years. You know, that was pretty revolutionary. And, and this had actually, and this still has majority support in the public opinion, you know, in opinion polls and in particular the youngest voters, uh, voted for this in the primary. But, you know, I think the media and a big part of the economics profession, uh, you know, is a very, uh, still very conservative, in my view, about, about these topics. And so, you know, it will take a, it will take a long time and many other uh, social shocks and political uh, shocks. So my next question is actually the one that in the, in the Q&A was voted up for the highest score and was from Orkan Saka, who's at Sussex and LSE. And he says... I was wondering what your take is in terms of the role of the financial industry in shaping inequality, both historically and in modern times. And you didn't really mention the financial industry in anything you said so far. Again, do you think it's just a sideshow or is it a big factor and needs to have a more central place? So in it, 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 it is a big factor and it does play a central role in my, in my book. Look, you know, I think the, the modern financial industry and, you know, the rise of uh, free capital flows and tax havens, you know, is uh, in the past decades is, is, has been playing the role of, of a sort of a new institutional way to give uh, political power to the wealthy, basically. So, you know, instead, we don't dare, uh, you know, doing what was done in the 19th century or in Sweden until 1910, which is to give more voting rights directly to the wealthy. You know, it's uh, something that, uh, you know, people are not, don't dare asking for that. You know, it, it doesn't look politically correct. But in effect, you know, the financial industry and the way it is organized is doing exactly this because we have constructed a sort of uh, uh, quasi-sacralized uh, right to uh, make a fortune in a country, you know, by using the public infrastructure of a country, the education system, the health system, and then you push on a button and your wealth goes to another country and nobody knows who owns what where and we don't, we have not planned any mechanism so that, you know, tax administration can track you down and, and make you pay the tax uh, you should pay. And, you know, there's nothing natural about this. Of course, this was all man-made by uh, international treaties organizing, organizing free capital flows without any regulation or taxation. 
And, you know, to me, this is really the core of what needs to be changed. So to, to me, you know, the, I am not against, uh, you know, free trade or free circulation of capital if it comes with counterpart in terms of common taxation, common regulation. But in the meantime, I think, you know, countries should uh, basically repudiate uh, this, uh, this free trade and free capital flows uh, uh, treaties without compensation and make proposals for better uh, uh, international uh, international uh, treaties. You know, there's very interesting work by a lawyer, uh, international lawyer like, uh, you know, Katrina Pister wrote this wonderful book, The Code of Capital, where she shows that, you know, the, the Maastricht Treaty in the case of Europe, you know, could be rewritten differently about capital flow so that there are conditions and there are sanctions for countries that do not meet this condition in terms of common taxation, common regulation. So that, that to me, that's really the you know financial regulation, re-regulation is at the core of what needs to be changed. And then I think we probably have time for one one more question. There's been a lot of interest in 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 again in the Q and A, looking at different questions about uh, where China fits into your story. So. Um, China's obviously a very important economy now. We look, look at its uh, a rapid growth, but also uh, evidence of rising inequality. So, so how do you think of China and, and how it fits into your framework? Well, you know, I think the, the failure of, of communism, at least of, you know, Soviet-type communism and Maoist-type communism, uh, you know, played a very big role in the rise of the kind of hyper-capitalism that we have today. So if you take China uh, today or, you know, or Russia today, you know, these are countries. So China is still supposed to be communist. Of course, it's ruled by a, by a communist party. But, uh, you know, if you look at China and Russia today, you know, these are for, uh, two countries, for instance, where you have zero tax on inherited wealth. You know, whereas in Britain, in Germany, in France, in US, you have tax of up to 30 or 40 percent on very high wealth, and I think it could be higher. In Asia, you know, if you die in Japan or if you die in communist Taiwan, uh, in capitalist Taiwan or in capitalist South Korea, you're going to pay an inheritance tax of uh, uh, 30 or 40 or 50 percent if you have very high wealth. Uh, if you go to China, if you go to Russia, it's zero percent. So, you know, the countries that, that are supposed to be communist or, you know, the post-communist Russia, uh, you know, in effect, uh, they have privatized a lot of their assets to the benefit of, you know, re typically relatively small groups uh, close to the, to the, to the, to the regime and to the, to the people in power. And now they can transmit the, the wealth, you know, to the next generation with no taxation. You know, they contribute to tax havens. Uh, uh, Hong Kong is an incredible example of a country that has become more unequal and that has abolished actually its inheritance tax after becoming communist or after joining, you know, a country that is ruled by the Communist Party of China. So I think it's a tip. It illustrates very well the kind of big ideological transformation that is at the core of my book, which is that the, the failure of Soviet-type communism and Maoist-type communism, you know, in the end contributed to the rise of hypercapitalism and was uh, instrumentalized, you know, by people in power, you know, oligarchs in, in Russia and China, you know, to, to go toward a very unequal uh, uh, system. And, you know, this together with political repression, uh, 
uh, in in Hong Kong and and uh, and you know and throughout uh, uh, China, you know, makes it. Uh, to me, uh, you know, it's it's you know, I think there should be there's there's you know, it's it's time to reconsider you know some of the some of the relation with uh, China and to and to make. Again, it's not only about carbon taxation. It's also about uh, you know what's uh, what you know what kind of model we want in terms of transparency, in terms of of of, uh, of freedom, and 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 you know the again that's one of the limit of the kind of free trade, free capital flow ideology in which we have today. Which uh, when it comes to 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 a country like China, you know, I think is not uh, is not uh, in my view is not sustainable. Thank you very much, Tom. I think we're we're out of time now. Um, thank you so much for your talk. Uh, I know it's generated a lot of interest. As I can see, apologies to those whose questions we couldn't get to. There were many, many questions um, uh, in in the Q and A. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us, um, and uh, uh, hope that you uh, you keep an eye on the website for LSE events and join uh, events in future. As I, as I stressed at the beginning, this is a special year for Economica, the House Journal uh, at, at LSE, uh, the 100th anniversary. And uh, we're grateful for Tom having to share his insights with us uh, as part of the uh, 100th anniversary Coast Lecture. Uh, good evening uh, and thank you for joining us.